Welcome to Outreach Church. Thanks for checking out this week's message. To hear more, subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or visit outreachchurch.net for downloads and service information. Last service had me just so stirred up. I have so much in my heart um, that I want to share. And I'm this is the thing that's awesome and stinks about two services. It's like I, I want so badly for everyone to hear what God said last service, but I want so badly for you to hear what he's saying this service. Um, and so, huh? Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, well, I mean... It's only about a two and a half hour message. If you get finished before I do, you can just leave and uh, we'll take note. How are you guys? Good? Yeah. What an amazing thought that, um, that there's always more of him, that, that we've, we've never come to the end of him. Uh, you know, it says that for eternity, we'll be discovering and searching him out. And, and it'd be really weird if we thought that we'd come to the end of him in our short time here on earth, if it's going to take eternity to search the mysteries of his love for us. And uh, I, so There's this thing about the woman with the issue of blood that always stirs something in me of this idea that, that, that Jesus didn't stand someplace and say, if you would just come touch my garment, you'll be healed. He, he never preached that before she came to him. He didn't, he didn't stand up and say that. It, it, uh, uh, this woman, it says, she, she said to herself, if I could just touch the hem of his garment, I'd be healed. And, and I think sometimes we, uh, as, as believers, one thing that I want to make sure that, that we don't find is that sometimes we can become complacent in this life and almost have this attitude of whatever's supposed to be will be. You know, because we've had this perversion or this twist of what God being sovereign means. And so we've taken the sovereignty or the, uh, the authority of God to mean that, that if everything that God wants to happen will happen. And if something does happen, then it automatically means that it was his will. And in doing so, we rob ourselves of this ability where by faith we actually take hold of a promise and Jesus looks at this woman who crawls on her hands and knees. See, when you get to a place where you honestly just want him so badly that you don't care about the people around you's opinions, and you crawl on your hands and knees to get through the crowd looking like an idiot, like everybody, nobody knows what she's doing. Nobody knows, she, oh, she's crawling. We know, we read the story. And so we picture in our mind this woman crawling to Jesus. And in our minds, we think, well, of course she was crawling to Jesus. She wanted to be healed. She was trying to get to him. There was a crowd everywhere. So, so, so we see her in our mind crawling. And it doesn't look weird to us. But you have to imagine, these are people walking through a market with no idea what this woman's doing that she's crawling past. She doesn't care what they think. It doesn't matter that everybody she crawls past thinks, what is this girl doing? She's got 12 years that have led her to this place of saying, I can't live like this anymore. I have to do something. I have to get to Jesus. And so she gets to this place where she decides, I can't live this way anymore. I've done everything else and everything else has failed me. If I could just get to him. And so she just crawls and, and, and fights her way through a crowd and she grabs a hold of Jesus with purpose. 
She doesn't casually just brush up against him like everybody else in the market. No, we talked about that. But she grabs a hold of him with a purpose and because she, she said to herself, if I could just touch the hem of his garment, I would be healed. And Jesus doesn't look at her and say, oh woman, the promise made you whole. He doesn't look at her and say, it was the will of my Father that you be made whole, although it was. He says, your faith, has made you whole. It's not arrogant to believe that using the measure of faith that we've been given actually creates a response from God when we can see over and over and over again in Scripture that Jesus looked at people. And it says, and seeing the faith of the friends, he said to the paralyzed man, take up your bed and walk. It doesn't say, and Jesus, listen, he could have healed him for a million reasons, but the Bible points out one. It wasn't even the man's faith. What an arrogant thing it would be if, and if, if we would look at each other so weird if, if we were talking to each other and we were like, yeah, and then the faith of his friends made the man whole. People, we would, we, in, in, in the church, we would look at each other and be like, how, how, that wasn't their faith. How dare you? That seems so arrogant to say, yet Jesus has no problem looking at them and saying, and seeing the faith of the friends, he said to the man, behold, looking at the centurion, your faith. Because of your faith. Over and over again. And there's this thing where it's like, if we're going to be believers, at some point we owe it to ourselves, but more than that to the world, to just believe. To just believe what the Word says. To seek out what is His will. The will of God is not this mysterious, unknown thing. Paul said, since we've heard this, I have not stopped praying that you would know the will of God for your life. You can actually know His will for your life. And everything that happens doesn't necessarily mean it's God's will. We can look at the garden and see an example of this. And I think this has been so twisted and it's, it's lulled Christians so many times into this place of just settling for whatever is in our lives as if that must be what God wants because if God didn't want it, it wouldn't be here. You know how you know it's God's will for your life? If you can find it in his word as him declaring that was his will for your life. If it's not, then it's not his desire and his will. And settling back and saying, well, if God didn't want it to be this way, it wouldn't be this way. No, that's not true. Because he gave you a will. And he gave you authority. Listen, we blame God. We say, well, why would God allow this to happen? Even that terminology gets sketchy. I'll put in a a simple way to understand. We have a dog right now named Cooper who's six months old. He is the cutest dog. He really is. And and, and, for real. And and not just because he's mine. You know, everyone thinks their baby's cute, but he really is cute. And, um, and so we're teaching him to not pee and poop in the house. And so the way we're doing that is we're using a, a crate in our house to keep him in, and then we take him out of the crate, we bring him outside, and we, we, he uses the bathroom. When he does, we reward him, we praise him for that behavior, and then we let him back into the house, and then he gets to hang out with the family and run around and be free, and then he goes back into the crate after a while, and then we take him back out. And in doing so, he learns, this is where I'm supposed to use the bathroom, this is what's expected of me, and, and this is where I get rewarded. And so by doing so, it's building, dogs are easy. They just think, if I do what the master says, the master will reward me. It's a weird concept. It's crazy that dog's theology is so much better than some Christians. For those who come to God must believe that he is. That's not enough. Everybody believes he is if you're coming to him as God. And that he is a rewarder of those who 
diligently seek him. If I diligently seek him, he'll reward. My dog understands this. <laughs> but now listen. So, so here's the deal. Because see, when Adam and Eve came onto the earth, God gave them authority over everything on the earth. Does that mean that God no longer has authority? No, of course he has authority. The only way he could give humanity authority is if he had authority to begin with. He doesn't have the right to look at something he doesn't have authority over and say, okay, Adam, I'm going to give you authority over that. You can't give authority unless you have the authority. That doesn't question his sovereignty or his authority at all for him to include us into that and to tell Adam, go and subdue the earth. Have authority over all that is on the earth. And so, so if... During this process of training, Dylan comes over, and I'm going to leave the house in the charge of Dylan for a while, and Patty and I are going to go out to eat. And I say to Dylan, Dylan, we are, um, we're potty training Cooper right now, and so make sure if you let him out of his kennel, the first thing you do is take him outside so that he can do his business, and then when he does, praise him, tell him, good boy, good potty, and bring him back into the house. What is my heart for Dylan? I mean, it's not a mystery. Like, this thing's not hard. That's not a trick question. I've very clearly communicated my heart. Dylan, this is what I want. And I've told him why I want it. Now, if Dylan decides, well, Cooper's whining. I'm going to let him out of his kennel. And then he lets Cooper out. Cooper comes out and he goes, oh, my gosh, he really is the cutest dog I've ever seen. <laughs> and decides he's just going to play with him and pet him. And he does all these good things, but he's not doing the thing I asked him to do. And Cooper wanders over and pees in a corner. Wouldn't it be weird for someone to come up to me while I'm out to dinner, look at me and say, I can't believe you let your dog pee in the house. I would look at him and say, I, I didn't let my dog pee in the house. Well, you allowed it. No, I didn't. I, I left Dylan in charge. And I told him what my heart was. I told him very clearly what to do. And he was supposed to do it. See, we understand this real easily when we're talking about a dog that's being kennel trained. But we point our fingers at a perfect God and say, why would you allow when it would make much more sense for the God who entrusted us with his spirit to look at us and say, why would you allow? I told you real clearly in my word what I wanted. I told you how to do it. I gave you everything you needed. I gave Dylan authority in my home when I left. That doesn't mean I no longer have authority. The only reason I could tell Dylan you're in charge when I'm gone is because I actually was in charge to begin with. It doesn't make me any less of an authority to entrust the authority to another person. It didn't take from Jesus' authority for him to look at the disciples and say, all authority in heaven and in earth has been given to me. Now you go in my name. As the Father sent me into the world, so I also now send you. And that doesn't make Jesus any less powerful, any less of an authority, or any less sovereign, or any less God for him to entrust something to people that he's given his authority to. Wouldn't it be weird, though, if the people he entrusted didn't do what he asked them to do and then pointed the finger at him when what he wanted to happen didn't happen? It should be. It should be just as strange as someone coming up to us at dinner and saying, why would you let your dog be in the house?
we can find this really easily just starting in the beginning. God creates Adam and Eve, puts them in the garden, tells them it's all yours, gives them authority over everything. It says, there is one tree. Don't eat that tree. What is God's will for Adam and Eve at that point concerning the tree? This isn't tricks, I promise. I'm going to be like, aha, you're all wrong. It's not going to happen. See, it's so simple, we overthink it, and we go, oh, he can't, it can't be. No, it really is that simple. If God looked at them, unless he is a liar and sociopathic, he's looking at the tree, looking at them, and says, you don't eat. For the rest of eternity, it should never be a question in anyone's mind if God wanted them to eat the tree or not. It was never his will. Then how did they eat the tree? Apparently, there must have been another will involved. Maybe what happened wasn't the will of God. It was the will of the one who came and said, you could be like God if you ate of the tree. And maybe Adam and Eve enforced the will of the enemy when they chose to follow the voice of a stranger rather than the voice of the Father. So are you saying that God didn't know? See, here's the problem. This is where we run into a problem. We confuse his will with his knowledge. And when you try to make the two at odds with each other and, and, and that one can't come without the, uh, one has to come at the expense of the other, here's the problem. God sits outside of time, and so he sees the end from the beginning and the beginning from the end. So before they eat the tree, he sees you eat the tree. Because he's apart from time, and we want to force him into linear time and say, well, then God must not have known, or he wouldn't have, well, they didn't really have a choice because God knew. They still had 100% choice in the matter, and God still, apart from time, could see the choice that they made before they made it, but he still gave them the choice whether they were going to eat the fruit or not. Well, if he already knew, see, that's the problem. You're confusing foreknowledge with will. He told them what his will is, even though he foreknew what they were going to do before they did it. And if you can't, if you can't separate the two from each other, you will continually go around in this circle and say, well, no, because if he didn't want them to, then he wouldn't have let them, if he knew they were going to. No, listen. God sits outside of time. He doesn't operate in a linear time space the way that we do. And so with our linear way of thinking, we think, well, if you already knew, you wouldn't if you didn't want them to. God said, don't eat the fruit. What is his will? Unless he's a liar and he's not a man that he should lie. But, but then, well, then he must not have known. Oh, he knew. He knew. He still didn't want them to. He just knew that they would. I don't get that. It's okay. You don't have to completely be able to understand everything. But what you can't do is take what you clearly understand and throw it away because there's a part of it that we can't clearly understand with our finite mind and our way of thinking that tries to force God into the same amount of time that we are and see things the way that, God, that we see them. 
It's okay to say, I'm not really sure how that works as long as we don't toss the things that we are sure about. Here's something I am sure about. God didn't want them to eat the fruit. If he did want them to eat the fruit, he would have said, eat it. If he didn't want to, he, said, he would say, don't eat it. He clearly communicated his heart. His will for your life is clearly communicated through the gospel. And if something in your life doesn't line up with what he's communicated in the gospel, then it's up to us to know the will of God for our lives and to not accept that and say, well, I guess this is just what God wants. Well, I guess God just wanted this way. I talked about this in the first service as an example, and then God really pricked my heart as like, no, this is more than just an example. This is something that we need to talk about, in the, and maybe it is here. But there, there's people out there who will look at a marriage and say, well, they just got lucky, or you know, like the marriage fairy just sprinkled their marriage, and, and it wasn't mine. No, listen, here's the truth. The truth of the matter is this, is that God created marriage as an example of the covenant relationship that he has with humanity. Paul says it's the best earthly example there is, meaning that his relationship with us should look like our relationships with our husbands and our wives. If my relationship with my wife doesn't look like my relationship with him in the way that I'm loved and love, in the way that we love and love, I owe it to myself not to say, well, I guess God doesn't want me to have a good marriage and accept that as the will of God. I have to look at what I am living in and say, this is less than his will for my life. And if he desires for me to have a marriage that would provoke the world to jealousy, and right now the only thing that people would be jealous of is what I'm putting on Instagram or Facebook, because everybody's marriage is perfect on Facebook. Everybody's marriage is perfect on Instagram. But if people would come to my home and see my marriage and say, holy smokes, I thought because I but what about the pictures and you said and how about and the trip and all this and the, the, this and that and the next thing? If my marriage doesn't look like what I want people to think it looks like, it's not okay to try to keep fooling people and be okay with what people think about my marriage when I know deep inside of my heart that what I have is not what his best is for my life. We owe it to ourselves to actually say no. If God said that he wanted my marriage to be a picture of the relationship he has with us, then I won't settle until I have that. No matter who I could fool, what would be the point? And I, I just feel like so many times there's so many things where we just put things off as being the will of God or, well, I guess God doesn't want. How do you know what God wants? Read his word. Eat the word. Eat the scroll. Know his word inside of you so that when you see something that doesn't line up, even if you don't know exactly why, there's something in you that says, this isn't right. This is less than his best for me. The disciples, think about this. The disciples have, have been given authority by Jesus to cast out demons and to heal the sick, to raise the dead and preach the gospel of the kingdom. Can we all agree that that was Jesus' will for his disciples when he said, go into all the towns and do these things? Okay, so we have no question what his will was when it came to seeing someone who was demonically possessed, what they were supposed to do. Jesus very clearly communicated it. So Jesus goes up on the mountain. They've already gone and cast out demons. Dad comes, you know the story, has the boy who suffers from seizures. The disciples try to cast the demon out, try to heal the son. They can't do it. They start arguing with the scribes and Pharisees. Jesus comes down off the mountain, goes over, talks to the father, casts out the demon, and the disciples are now distraught because what they couldn't do. And to their credit, it at least bothers them enough when they don't see what God promised happened in their life, that they go to him and say, why not? 
Some of us have become so passive in our Christianity. This isn't meant to spank. This is to encourage us that there's this place of saying, like, Christianity is not this passive thing. I don't settle back and just say, well, I mean, I guess I couldn't. and God must not have wanted me to. How do you know what God wanted if you don't know his will for your life? This is why Paul said, I haven't stopped praying that you would know the will of God. You can know it, and then you can use that as a barometer for what your life is actually looking like. Rather than letting your experience determine the will of God. That will take you so far off course because now you're saying, well, if this is what I've experienced, then this must be what God wants. And you've now made God in your own image rather than letting him recreate you in his. And so the so disciples are, are bothered about this and they say, why couldn't we? And, and it would have been so convenient if Jesus would have said, because it wasn't my father's will. Because then we can make a theology that says, hey, we just, you know, we give it a shot. If it works, it must have been God's will. If it doesn't, then it wasn't God's will. And now we know how we determine God's will. We determine God's will by the outcome. Listen, if you're trying to find his will by the outcome, you probably don't have the faith to walk into the situation already sure of what he wants it to be anyways. And you may end up with a self-fulfilling prophecy, not seeing something happen. And Jesus may turn and look to us and give the same answer that he gave to the disciples. We've got to consider this for once, that maybe he would say the same thing to us that he said to the disciples. Maybe that there's a chance if we were to ask him those same questions that he might look at us and say the same thing to us that he said to the disciples. And he doesn't say, because it wasn't my Father's will. You realize Jesus healed every single person that came to him. And he is the exact representation of the character and the nature of the Father. I'm not making these, like, I'm not trying to, like, this isn't my theology. I'm telling you what the Word says. And he healed them all. You know, there was one time he didn't heal them all. You know, he talked about the same thing there as he talked about in this situation when the disciples said, why couldn't we? Look, I feel like people, this don't, don't you dare be tempted to be condemned by this. You let this convict you and bring you to a place of saying, God, there has to be more, and I can't be okay just settling back and being passive and thinking that whatever you want is going to automatically happen because that's a misuse of the authority and the sovereignty of God because within his authority and sovereignty, he's written humanity into the story, and he's asked us and told us and charged us and filled us with his spirit and sent us into the world the same way he sent Jesus into the world. That's all in your Bible every single bit of it, and none of that takes away from his authority. The only reason he has the authority to, to give it to us is because it's his to begin with. I can't tell Dylan he has control over your house. I don't have authority over your house. I can't say, Dylan, you go to Brent and Allie's house and just whatever you, you, you're in charge, you tell them what to do. I can't do that because I don't have authority over their home. I only have authority over mine. I can only give authority over the things I have authority over. Well, God happened to have authority over everything. So when Jesus said, all authority in heaven and in earth has been given to me, that means nobody else had authority. And then he said, now you go in my name. So the disciples are, are tore up by this question, and they want to know, why couldn't we? I just think, it's, it's honestly, it's time for us as a church, it's time for Christianity to get to a place where we know what Jesus has said, and when we don't see it manifest, it bothers us to the point where we go to him and contend for it and say, why not? I mean, dude, like literally, where we know, the, they knew what Jesus said. It only bothered them because Jesus said, go and cast out demons. So they've already done that. And now they don't see it happen, and it bothers them. Why? Because they know what Jesus has said. 
Sometimes we don't even have any idea what God spoke about a situation, and we're starting to determine and, and make what his will is based on the circumstance or the situation that we find ourselves in. Well, I guess this must be the will of God. How do you know if you haven't heard him speak? So they come to him, and why couldn't we? He doesn't say it wasn't my father's will. That would be convenient. He doesn't say, well, I don't do that anymore. It'd be easier for us and horrible for the world if he would have. If he'd have just said, well, I don't, I don't, that, that stuff was for, you know, it's always for a time that's not now. Like everything good in the Bible is either for a time that was, was or a time that is to come. Right now, you're in this time of not now. One day or way back when, but not now. Well, how far back when? Well, just not now. No, nobody's real clear exactly when. They just know it's not now. You know where that comes from? It comes from our wanting to, uh, to have an answer for everything, even at the expense of what God said. Jesus, they, he doesn't look at him and say, I don't do that anymore. If he said that, then we could just go through the motions. If it happened, then God does it. If it didn't, well, he doesn't do it anymore. And that would be just, we would then determine what God does by what we see. How do you even have faith? How do you have faith? How can he require something of the measure of faith that he's given to you if everything is completely up to him? How, did, how dare God look and say, if my people who are called by my name would humble themselves and pray, I'll hear from heaven and I'll heal their land, if he's going to heal their land whether they pray or not? How, how, how dare he make conditional promises if everything that happens is what he wants? How dare he say to Saul, Saul, if you would have listened and obeyed what I said to you, I would have today established your family on this throne forever. But since you have done what is evil, my presence has left you and your son will not sit on. How dare God if he wasn't planning to do that from the beginning? Are you saying God didn't know that Saul would make that mistake? No, he knew Saul would make that mistake because he's outside of time and sees it happen before it happens. But in the moment, he's telling Saul, your decision mattered. If we can't separate the, his knowledge from his will and we try to make them one and the same, we will go around and around in circles chasing our tails. Does that mean I have an answer for everything? No, there's some stuff that I'm okay saying. You know, I'm not really sure what that means exactly, but I can't throw away everything that is so clearly written for the sake of something that I don't understand that he hasn't given revelation on. And I would have to throw out so much of the Bible to try to make some of the verses mean what people think they mean. And so he doesn't say, I don't do that anymore. He doesn't say, it's not my father's will. What are some of the other popular answers that we give when people say, well, how come, or why couldn't we, or well, what about, because when you start talking like this, instantly people pull that memory into their head of the time of the day, and this didn't happen, and they use that to challenge the word of God. They hold up their experience so highly that they would challenge the word of God. You realize the disciples could have done that to Jesus just as easily as we do it today? They could have said, well, I mean, obviously it wasn't your will. How dare you rebuke us? The, the storm comes, and they think they're going to die, even though he said we're going to go to the other side. So what they're seeing is confronting what he spoke. And when they don't live by what he said, but they live by what, he, what they saw, he rebukes them and says, why is it that you still have no faith? He doesn't say, oh, I understand. 
I, I, I know I said, let's go to the other side, but that was a really bad storm. So you get a hall pass. Listen, this is not to condemn us. This is to say, if he can require it from us, then that means it's available. Otherwise, he's double-minded, and he's saying, do this, even though you can't do this. And then he's saying, you're bad for not doing that, and you have no faith, or whatever he says. And yet, on the same hand, you had no ability to do it. The ability had to be there for him to rebuke them for not living in the ability. I don't tell Dylan, Dylan, you were supposed to take the dog outside, not let him pee in the corner if Dylan lacks the ability to take the dog outside. I would never lock my house from the outside where Dylan cannot go outside and then rebuke him for not bringing the dog outside when I made it impossible for him to do so. That would be the weirdest thing ever, but yet we put God into that box all the time. And I honestly, like, I just feel this so strong in me. If like, we're going to settle for less if we don't actually come to a place where we allow ourselves to be broken by his word and say, God, I know what I've seen, but I know what your word says, and I have to have what you say. Not just see here, I'm talking about if you said marriage is supposed to be a picture to the world of your covenant with man, my marriage doesn't look like that, but it has to because you gave your life for that. And I can't sit back and think that somebody won the marriage lottery and I just got unlucky. No, I'm going to contend for what you said is, is possible and for what you declared until I have it. I'm going to be like the woman with the issue of blood who said, I don't care if I look like a fool and if it takes a long time, I got to get to Jesus because I'm not okay living this way anymore. I can't be okay being, she had tried everything else. It makes a point to let us know that over the years, she tried everything else. She'd come to the end of what the world could offer. When you come to the end of what the world can offer, you have one of two things that you can do. You can either sit back and say, this must be the will of God, or you can get on your knees and climb to Jesus and say, there must be more. There must be something that he has that I need. That's all you can do at the end of everything. You can either accept it as the will of God, even though his word clearly says it's not, and give yourself a false peace. Or you can say, if this is what you've said, and this is what I see, there's a gap. I've got to get to you. I've got to get to you because I have to see what you said. I've got to see it. I can't live like this. I've got to see it. And you get to this point where it's like nothing else matters but finding him in that moment and saying, Jesus, I have to have you. I have to have what you promised. I have to see it. He looks around at the, at the disciples and he says, because of your unbelief, how dare he? Was you telling me I didn't believe? The disciples could have said this to Jesus the way we say this to each other, the way we say this to God. Oh, so you're telling me I didn't believe? No, I'm not telling you that. I'm just saying that in this instance, Jesus said that to the disciples, there's a chance if we find ourselves asking the same question, we may hear the same answer. I'm not saying you would. I'm saying just entertain the thought that you might. No, I'm being serious. I don't mean that as a joke, though. I'm not saying that's the answer. Do we live in a fallen world? Sometimes things happen we don't have an answer for. Don't feel the need to give an answer where God's not speaking. You get yourself into trouble that way because you're trying to give an answer where he hasn't spoke, but don't give an answer contrary to the one he spoke. That's equally dangerous. Don't, for the sake of a temporary peace, give somebody a lie wrapped in a smile to try to make them feel better in a moment because that'll just lead to bigger problems down the road. 
Because if you start telling people when that, when that, when that little girl is, 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 is brutalized and left and dead, and you start telling people, well, we just don't understand why God does the things that he does, but we know this was his will, follow that logic out for a second, and that means the people who were doing that to the little girl were also acting in the will of God, yet they had to violate his spoken word, of, word to do that, and he values his word even above his own name. There is no chance that God is making somebody do something that violates his word and calling it his will. Follow that out a little bit. Why did it happen? I don't know. We live in a, in a, in a fallen world and terrible things happen sometimes, but I'm not going to blame the one who is perfect for the actions of those who aren't. Come on. We have to get to this place, you guys. It's okay to say, I'm not sure, but I know this. It wasn't him. Because this is who he is as revealed to the, in the word. This is who he is as revealed in the life of Jesus. And Hebrews tells us that he is the exact representation of the character and nature of the Father. That means if I can't explain it in the life of Jesus, I probably shouldn't make something up just to give somebody a temporary peace. Because when they get to the end of that peace, then they're going to start asking harder questions. Well, God needed another angel, so he had a man rape my little girl and kill her? That was his way of getting another angel? This is the God you want me to surrender my life? Come on, that stuff's sick. It's twisted. No, the answer is sin. That wasn't his will from the beginning. In fact, it wasn't his will all the way through because he said, don't steal, don't kill, don't lust, don't commit adultery. You had to break every one of his, uh, you know, violate so much of his will at every step to get to that place. And then suddenly a life is lost and all of a sudden now miraculously it becomes the will of God. Stop. You wonder why people don't want to come to a God like that. It's okay to say, I'm not sure why that happened. I do know this. We live in a fallen world, and there is evil in the land. But I am thankful that because of the blood of Jesus, that little girl that we knew for four years will know for eternity. And I'm not going to sacrifice what I do know for temporary peace at the expense of what I, or what I don't know for a term, temporary peace at the expense of what I do know clearly revealed through his word. I can't do that. So he looks at the disciples, and he says, because of your unbelief, and I tell you this kind unbelief only comes out by praying and fasting and this stings a little bit to the disciples i'm sure you know what it stings a little bit when we when we actually see that maybe there's a part that we've played in this this isn't for self-condemnation and beating yourself up and any of that stuff it's saying if, if, if it's true that i played a part in that then that means that the next time i can play a different part it means if you've called me to do this and I'm not seeing it, then that means that there's a place that I can find in you and there's something I can discover about your heart and there's a place of seeking you. Jesus gets alone and fasts for 40 days before he starts his ministry. 40 days. Jesus, who started perfect. He's born of a virgin, fathered by the Holy Spirit, and he has to go and fast and be alone and seek the Father for 40 straight days before he steps into ministry for three and a half years. And some of us haven't even fasted for four days, and yet we want to see what Jesus saw. Come on, you're trying to live like Jesus in public without living like Jesus in private. You want to live like Jesus, but you don't want to live like Jesus. I'm preaching to myself too. And then when it doesn't happen, instead of actually going and saying, you know what, I'm not maybe not following Jesus in this area. Instead, we sit back and say, well, it must be God's fault. Why would God allow this? Maybe God didn't allow it. Maybe God told you to be the one that pushes back against the forces of darkness on this earth and wickedness against this earth. Maybe God said that if we would humble ourselves and if we would pray, you know, he said, pray for rulers and leaders. He said, and, he, and there's a promise attached to this, that you may live a peaceful and quiet life in all godliness and holiness. 
Do you understand that more words condemning leaders probably come out of Christians' mouths right now than words of prayer and words uh, that, would, that would be thankful? It said, give thanks for them. That doesn't mean you agree with everything that they, that, that they do, but you don't lose sight of who they are for what they've done, just like God never lost sight of who you are for what you've done. You see them as a person to love and to pray for. You may, maybe, do you realize some, maybe some of the peace that would come from that is you can't divide yourself into camps and hate people if you find yourself on your knees praying for them. Right now in this country, we just divided ourselves and we said, well, this is who I am and this is who I am. And if I'm here, then that's the enemy. And if I'm there, then they're the enemy. We've lost total sight of who the actual enemy is. And then we argue and we fight and we do all these things, but we don't do the one thing that God said would lead to peaceful and quiet life full of godliness and holiness. And that's to humble ourselves and actually pray for those who are rulers and in authority over us. I promise you, you spend some time on your knees thanking God for their life and praying for them. You might find it hard to hate them in the morning. And maybe the peace comes not so much just because everything around you changes, but you have peace in your heart instead of turmoil because you see people for who they are and you're able to divide who they are from what they've done. So here's, here's how this happens, though. This is, this is how it happens. The disciples, a little bit stung, a little bit maybe confused, a little bit later, right at the same chapter, come to Jesus. The next thing they say after, why couldn't we? And him telling them because of your unbelief. Lord, we saw some people casting out demons in your name, but they weren't with us, so we told them to stop. Lord, we saw people doing what we couldn't do. And rather than humbling ourselves and learning from them, we told them that they couldn't do what they're doing. We made a reason up why they couldn't do what they were doing because it bothered us that we couldn't do what they were doing. And rather than actually asking ourselves a question, we shut down the answer. Well, yeah, I mean, yeah, they, they have a great marriage, but they ha- how do you know they haven't been through more than what you've been through? And the reason they're so happy is because they're actually thankful for where they are because of where they've been. Well, yeah, but their kids don't. How do you know what they've been through with their kids? And maybe their relationship with their kids doesn't define their joy. Maybe they've found a greater joy so that they can actually love and parent their kids from a place of joy rather than frustration about who they're not. Yeah, but if I had friends like that, maybe you don't have friends like that because you're not being that friend to people. Lord? I'm just, I want to, I want to close up with this. I want to challenge us as a church family um, that we would be people that would actually seek to know the will of God for ourselves and for those around us so that when we actually experience things, we can hold them up to the light. If you, listen, if you want to know what God's will is, find it in his word. Find it in the character and nature of Jesus. Find it by asking the Holy Spirit to open up and reveal the Scripture to you and show you what the will of the Father is. If Paul could pray for people to have the eyes of their understanding open and for them to know the will of God, then that must mean that there's a place where you can actually know the will of God. Otherwise, it's just a fruitless prayer that Paul devoted his time to. He actually believed you could know it. 
And he actually thought it was so important that he said, I've been praying ever since I heard that you believed. Why? Because you're going to walk through this life and there's going to be a bunch of things presented to you and you have to know what's God's best and what's God's will for your life and what's not so that you know what things to agree with and what things to actually stand in war against in a place of prayer and determination. Otherwise, how do you know what you're fighting? It could be his will. How do you know? Find it. You find him. You get to a place where you look and find his heart and the word, and rather than settling on, well, I guess God doesn't want me to have that, you say, no, God does want me to have that. Listen, and I'm telling you right now, I had this word for marriages in the last service, and I'm going to give it again in this one because some people need to hear this. Listen to me. You may think that where you got in 10 years, in 15 years, in 20 years, in 30 years, wherever it is, you may think, well, it's taken me this long to get there. It's going to take forever to get back. Can I just tell you this? That you've gone where you've gone against the wind of heaven with heaven resisting you the entire time. And if you would actually turn and head towards what he's promised, the wind of heaven blows at your back. And if a day is to a thousand years as a thousand years is to a day, how long does 20 years of a bad marriage take to fix? That's not a mathematical formula. Don't go home and try to figure it out. (laughs) It's not. We get in trouble when we try to reduce them down to a formula. All God was saying is, I don't see time the way that you see time. And something that you think is a thousand years is a day to me. So if a thousand years can be as a day to God, how quickly can he restore when two people would actually decide we can't have less than what God wants in this relationship? God, if you called us to this place and you said that you wanted to put us on display to provoke the world to jealousy, do you realize that God said if you would humble yourself, he would exalt you? It's not arrogant to be exalted by God. Quit trying to humble people. Maybe they're being exalted because they've actually humbled themselves. We're fine with people humbling themselves. We, we, we love it. When people are humble and they humble themselves, they're like, oh man, look at that. That guy's so humble. You realize that James and Peter both said if you would humble yourself in the sight of God in due time, in due season, James just says if you humble yourself, he'll exalt you. Peter at least puts a time thing in there and says, okay, if you humble yourself in due season, God will exalt you. James is just like, look, do it. Humble yourself. He'll exalt you. You're not humbling yourself for the sake of being exalted. But when you humble yourself and you're exalted, it's okay and it's not arrogant to live in what God's done in your life and to be able to put it on display to provoke the world to jealousy. It should provoke our brothers and sisters to jealousy and it should bring us to this place the disciples didn't get to. Rather than telling people and looking for reasons why they couldn't have or shouldn't have what they have, maybe the disciples should have went over to them and said, hey, how are you guys doing this? We just tried a minute ago with this kid. He was seizuring. And we, I mean, we know we've done this before, but this time we couldn't. And then we asked Jesus, and he said, you know, this kind of only comes out by praying and fasting. He said it was our unbelief. And maybe people would look at him and say, you know, Jesus wasn't saying, like, you got to go pray and fast before you can cast out this kind of demon. And I think what Jesus was saying was that if you would actually go after the unbelief in your life by praying and fasting, when you walked into a situation that required belief, you'd have what you need in the moment. Because if you notice, Jesus didn't go off and pray and fast, did he? No, he didn't. Did he, did he leave for a while and, and go to a tent and fast real fast or pray? And No, he just told the thing to come out. He told the boy's father that if he believed, it'd be possible. Yeah, see, there's that belief thing again. It has a lot more to do with the unbelief than it does the demon. Quit making it about the demon and start realizing he's after your heart. So I want to do two things because um, God put it really strongly in my heart. The first thing is this is, If you're here and you're like, man, this all sounds really great, but I don't even know him as Savior or as Lord. 
You know, Peter's talking to the people on the day of Pentecost. And he says, now you see this Christ whom you crucified as both Savior and Lord. He's Savior because he died for my sins in place of me for the forgiveness of my sins. He lives because he's Lord and he deserves my life. It's not just about saying Jesus is my Savior. It's about him being Savior and Lord, meaning he saved me from myself so that I could be set free to give my life to him. And he's now Lord of my life. I'm not alive for me anymore. I'm alive to do the will of the one who's Lord. And trust me, it's amazing having a king like Jesus. Everything's better when Jesus is king. Everything's better when Jesus is Lord. Everything. Because he redeems and restores everything that we let him. That we let him. So if you would say, well, I don't. I, I don't even know if I've done... Following Jesus is not raise your hand, say a prayer, go back to life the way it was, but it's a journey of following him, but every journey starts with the first step, and the first step in following Jesus and being a born-again, new, new creation in Christ is to say, I need a Savior. I need to surrender my life. I need to receive what he died on a cross and paid the price for. I need to be forgiven of my sins. And then the next thing is to make him Lord. That's to say, I no longer live for me. I live to do what you've called me to do. I now submit myself to your lordship. My life no longer belongs to me. It's no longer I who lives, but he that lives in me. So if you've never done that, you could do that today. And I'm not going to say every eye closed and every head bowed, because the truth of the matter is, is if you see what he's done for you and you really want this, there's nothing, no one sitting around you that's going to stop you from saying, I want this. When you get to the place like the one with the issue of blood, she didn't, she didn't say, all right, guys, I want every head closed and every eye bowed. I'm about to crawl to Jesus. <laughs> or every eye closed, every head bowed. I'm about to crawl to Jesus. She didn't say that. She didn't say, all right, everybody, I need everyone just not looking around, paying attention to the person next to you. This is a personal thing between me and God. She just said, there he is. Here I am. I have to get to him, and I don't care who sees. So if that's you, would you just raise your hand right now? We'll pray with you. You can start walking this life knowing that you're born again, filled with the Spirit of God, saved and submitted to Him and His Lordship. Is there anybody here who needs to do that before we move on? Anybody? Did someone raise their hand? If they did, point to them because I didn't see it. Yes. Okay, awesome. (laughs) Yes. Yes. So here's what we're going to do. I, I want, I, want um, I see Matt and Anya are close to you back there, and um, Jay is back there next to you, um, and, and Jeremy Likens, I see right there. They're real close to you, and Corey's standing behind you. They're going to pray with you, okay? And here's the, here's the deal. It really is as simple as believing in your heart, confessing with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, died on a cross, and that God raised him from the dead. It, in, in a moment, everything changes, and then it's a lifetime of following him. And walking that out and submitting and yielding your life and being transformed as you yield your life to the Lordship of Jesus and everything changes. I Listen to me. Everything, it says, for them that are in Christ, the past is gone. Behold, all things have passed away and everything has become new. It's, a new, it's not a fixed up version of you. This is not you 2.0. This is you as you were meant to be when you came forth from the mouth of the Father and the hand of the Father living the life that you were created to live, filled with his spirit. And every decision that you made apart from him is no longer being counted against you because the old has passed and the new has come. Jesus is Lord. There were once you sat on the throne and life was about pleasing yourself. Now he sits on the throne and life is about pleasing him. And you'll discover that that life is greater than any life you could have dreamed up for yourself, even if you tried.
So they're going to pray with you, and we're going to ask God to come. And you're going to become a new creation. We're going to ask him to fill you with his spirit. And then we're going to make sure that you're plugged in with some people that can continue to walk this out with you as you discover what it's like to follow Jesus. Thank you for being courageous to do that. Thank you so much. The second thing that I want to do, you guys can go ahead and start talking and praying with her back there in the corner. The next thing I want to do is that there's people in here, and I've been talking this whole time, and there's something that you know where in your life you've settled for less than what his will is. You see where you are, you see what his will clearly says, and you realize there's a gap there. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, but let this convict you to a point where you say, I have to have him in that area. I I don't have what he promised, and I can't change his mind, so I might as well change mine. If that's you, would you just stand right where you are? We're going to pray with you. And listen, this is not a magic prayer. There's, there, I promise you, this is not going to be some magic prayer that suddenly everything changes. This is you saying, I'm determining in my heart that I can't live this way anymore, and I have to have you. And that's what makes things happen, is when we attach our faith with the preaching of the gospel. It talks about the Israelites. It says that. It says, they too had this gospel preached to them, but it was of no effect because they didn't mix faith with the hearing of the word. In other words, they had to attach their faith to what they heard. They had to actually do something with what they heard and believe it and then live as though it's true. And that's what we're going to pray. We're going to pray for that same spirit that caused that woman to say, I'll crawl on the ground if I have to, but I have to get to Jesus because nothing else will do. That same spirit would possess you, that there would never be a place in your life where you would settle for less than his best and say, well, I guess this is what God wants. No, if you can't find it in his word, then it's not what he wants. It's a different plan. He said, I know the plans that I have for you, plans to bless you, not to harm you, plans to prosper you and give you an expected hope. If it's not blessing, prospering, and giving hope, it's not his plan. Period. Because he's not a man that he should lie. So guys, if you're sitting next to them, believers, just put your hand on them if that'd be okay with them. And and we're just going to pray, and this is what we're going to pray. God, would you set their faces towards you like Flint? that they would say, I have to have Jesus. I can't settle for less. You just begin to pray that over them. Begin to prophesy over them that the wind of heaven is now blowing at their back because they're running towards the Lord. And he's drawing them in rather than trying to keep them from where they're going. That everything changes when the Spirit of God comes. That nothing's the same when his spirit comes and begins to draw us in, when, in, a, in, opposition, in, in a place where we were once running away from his drawing. That in a thousand years he can do what it takes a day, and in a day he can do what we think takes a thousand years. That he doesn't have to go through years and years of getting back and saying, well, I have to, it's going to take this long because it took me that long. Stop it. That's thinking with your mind and not with the things of the Lord. The Lord said that a day to him, a thousand years to him is is a day. He can in a moment change something you've believed for a lifetime. One truth can change a lifetime of lies. You can literally encounter him in one place. Saul has spent his life going towards one thing, persecuting and destroying the very church. The next minute, who are you, Lord? And his life is from that day forward dedicated to knowing this God and growing and building this church. It didn't take him years and years to get there. It took him a few years of spending time to learn the new revelation that hadn't been poured out. And from that day forward, he never went back. You can start where Paul ended because that revelation has come. You don't have to spend three years in a cave to get it. You can open his word and get it in a day. 
and then walk it out for a lifetime. So God, we thank you for just the wind of heaven coming. We thank you for that determined spirit that was in that woman who said, I have to get to him. If I could just get to Jesus, I know this will change. And where nothing would stop us, that we would risk looking like a fool if need be to crawl on our hands and knees in front of others because we have to get to you because we won't settle for less. I thank you for that. I thank you that today would be a day that you would mark that things change, not because of an emotional decision, but because of an eternal truth. We thank you for this life that has changed in a moment today, God. For someone who's become a new creation, we pray that you would just bless her, God. Fill her with your spirit. Draw her into you, Father God. Speak to her and reveal your heart for her life. Show her why you created her. Why the things that have been inside of her her whole life are there. That there's purpose and value within her that's always been there. In Jesus' name, we thank you for that. In Jesus' name.